Welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler, Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. First up, I want to give a quick shout-out to Lee Carlos Cunningham over at the Raw is Nitro podcast. He's been on this show twice, and in the coming weeks, I will actually be appearing on his podcast to discuss both Raw and Nitro from May 27th, 1996. Why is that significant? Because it's the date that a certain someone makes his debut on Nitro by entering through the crowd and disrupting the show. Definitely be sure to check that out and subscribe to the Raw is Nitro podcast because our episode is probably going to go up in early January, so be sure to keep an eye out for that. Alright, so with that being said, let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, March 1st, 1999, and we are live from Gund Arena in Cleveland, Ohio, now called Quicken Loans Arena in the present day. Now, normally at this point, I list some of the noteworthy events which have taken place in this same arena, and in this case, there are a lot of them. 23 episodes of Raw, 13 episodes of SmackDown, and 7 pay-per-views, including SummerSlam 96, the upcoming No Mercy 1999, which lends its name to the best wrestling video game ever, most recently Fastlane 2016, and perhaps the most noteworthy event, the July 2001 pay-per-view known as Invasion. Lots of history in this building, folks. We open the show with highlights from last week's episode of Raw, where Vince McMahon forced The Undertaker to face his brother Kane in an Inferno match, but Vince's plan backfired on him when Taker actually won the match by setting Kane's foot on fire. However, another side plot which got quite a bit of attention was when Paul Bearer delivered a teddy bear to the chairman, would that make him Paul Teddy Bearer, I guess? And that gift almost caused Vince to break down into tears. The show went off the air with The Undertaker setting the teddy bear on fire as Vince looked on and screamed, No! What does it all mean? Well, perhaps we'll get some answers tonight. So after those highlights, we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include I hate signs, Look Ma, I'm on wrestling, I'm hung, Muff Diver with an arrow pointing down. Gilberg is my dad, and on a related note, in a completely different section of the arena, Sammy's my dad. Kenny, your sister was great last night. I was born on the 316th day of the year, and that would be November 12th in a non-leap year if you're scoring at home. Contact Sable at 1-800-IMPLANTS. DDP bangs men. Get it? Bang, huh? Right? Triple H, don't throw me out this time, you prick. I'd 
Love to know what that was all about. And Tanya, two words for you. Shave it. So apparently that guy isn't happy with his girlfriend's 70s bush, I'm guessing. All right, then. So we officially kick off the show with the entire corporation heading to the ring. In case you're having trouble keeping track, here is who currently makes up the corporation. Vince McMahon, WWF European Champion Shane McMahon, WWF Champion The Rock, Paul White, China, Kane, The Big Boss Man, Ken Shamrock, Test, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe. And yes, that would be a whopping 11 people. Truthfully, I kind of miss the days when we had large factions, so WWE, if you want me back, put a big-ass group of people together, and I will possibly consider watching again. So anyway, Vince grabs a microphone and says that we all witnessed a historic moment last week because, for the first time, Vince McMahon showed weakness. But don't worry, because it's not going to happen again. He then says that he was not brought to his knees by a teddy bear, but rather what the bear represented, and he says that very few people are aware of how much love Vince has to give. How sweet. But then he turns his attention to Kane, and because Kane did not win the Inferno match last week, Vince gives him his classic catchphrase, You're fired. Which, when you think about it, is kind of unfortunate phrasing when talking about an Inferno match. Vince then brings out eight hospital orderlies in white coats to take Kane away, but of all people, China helps Kane beat the orderlies' asses. She then grabs a mic and tells Vince that she knows how to control Kane, so before he fires him, Vince should actually give Kane one more chance. He should be allowed to keep his job if he can defeat Stone Cold Steve Austin tonight. Mr. McMahon does indeed agree to that match, but with one added stipulation... If Kane loses, not only is he fired, but China is fired as well. And from there, we then get an interruption by Mankind, who is still on a quest to be named as the second guest referee for the main event of WrestleMania, with Paul White already being announced as the first. And if you recall last week on Raw, Mankind was booked as the special guest referee for the WWF title match between The Rock and Paul White, which, of course ended up being a setup, so both men just started kicking Foley's ass instead of having an actual match. So let's go ahead and take a listen to what Mankind has to say. I am glad that you're in such a giving mood. And since you are, how about giving me another chance to prove myself. You see, last week I came out here and was screwed worse than a White House intern. So I'd like tonight another chance to show Commissioner Michaels what an asset I could be at the WrestleMania main event as a second referee when Stone Cold faces The Rock. And I'd like to show you that by refereeing tonight's match between Kane and Stone Cold Steve Austin. What is this? Mankind! He wants another chance! No, no, 
he doesn't deserve it. Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Wait a minute. I'll do something for you. You do something for me. You get your opportunity. However, no one holds the victories over the Undertaker like you do, mankind. And here in this very arena, you defeated the Undertaker in the boiler room brawl. Oh, yeah, remember that? Classic. So I tell you what, you get your wish, but only if you defeat the Undertaker in this ring tonight. Oh, my! Oh, my gosh. How smart is Mr. McMahon? He's this guy's smarter than I am. What well, Vince, if that's what it's going to take, then I guess that's what I'll have to do. <laughs> oh, what the hell is this? Oh, my God! Where is he? Watch your back. Watch back. McMahon, I've told you what I plan to do. And I've told you what it is I'm going to take. <laughs> In case you were wondering about the end part of that clip there, The Undertaker's music played, but he did not show up in the arena. Instead, we just got that cryptic voiceover. But I suppose we can assume that he is unfazed by the previous events which just unfolded. But anyway, there you have it. Mankind will be allowed to referee the Austin vs. Kane match tonight, as long as he can defeat The Undertaker first. I'm going to repeat that. Mankind will be the guest referee for Austin Kane tonight, if he defeats The Undertaker. Just just file that information away for later, that's all I'm saying. And by the way, when Vince McMahon mentions that Mankind has a very strong track record against The Undertaker, well, I suppose that's kinda true? In one-on-one -on -one matches, Mankind beat him at the 96 King of the Ring and the aforementioned Boiler Room Brawl at SummerSlam 96, which, as Vince said, took place in this very same arena. Unfortunately, Taker has actually beaten Foley four times in singles matches, at In Your House Buried Alive, Survivor Series 96, In Your House Revenge of the Taker, and, of course, in the Hell in a Cell match at King of the Ring 98. So if you go by that, Mankind's winning percentage against Taker is actually... 33%. And sure, that may actually be higher than most other wrestlers, but still, not that great. But the point is, tonight, we now have two matches booked, Stone Cold Steve Austin vs. Kane, and Mankind vs. The Undertaker. This should certainly be an interesting night, so I'm looking forward to seeing how it all plays out. So after that segment concludes, we go to Michael Cole and Jerry the King Lawler at the commentary table, and they inform us that Billy Gunn was originally scheduled to wrestle tonight, but he is now unable to compete. From there, we cut backstage, where we see Ryan Shamrock emerging from a locker room and fixing her dress, as though she may have just been engaging in, shall we say, extracurricular activities. However, Cole had just informed us that Billy Gunn is unfit to compete, so who exactly was Ryan getting cozy with? I guess it could, in theory, still be Billy, but who knows? Truly, this is quite the suspenseful night already. 
And after a commercial break, we go back into the arena for our first match of the evening, and it is a triple threat match for the WWF Intercontinental title, champion Val Venus versus Ken Shamrock versus Goldust, who is now accompanied by the Blue Meanie. If you recall last week, Goldust scored an upset victory over Val when the Blue Meanie interfered and DDT'd Val on the arena floor behind the referee's back, so presumably that non-title victory is the reason why Goldust has now earned his way into the title picture. And then, last night on Sunday Night Heat, Goldust did a bizarre interview with Michael Cole where he claimed that he was trying to become the Blue Meanie's mommy, so sure, why not? Why not? And going back to Billy Gunn for a second, when Ken Shamrock is making his way to the ring, we get footage from earlier today when a doctor informs Mr. Ass that he will be unable to compete tonight. Billy, you looked at the x-rays today, and I, I gotta tell you, they don't really look good. You've got some fluid in your lungs, and, and I gotta tell you, you're on the verge of an asthma attack, and, and frankly, it looks like it, it could easily get into pneumonia. Well, so what are you telling me? Well, I'm sorry, I, you just can't wrestle tonight. You gotta be kidding me! I got a shot at the Intercontinental title that I've been screwed out of more times than I can count, and you're telling me just because of, just because I have something wrong with me, like a pneumonia or something silly like that, I've wrestled with everything, broken neck, broken arm, it doesn't matter, but you're going to sit here and tell me that I'm not going to get my shot at the Intercontinental title because I got some cold or something? <coughs> I got some cold or something? It doesn't matter. This is ridiculous. Thanks a lot. I'm holding you responsible for it, too. So there you have it. Billy Gunn was supposed to be in tonight's Intercontinental title match, but apparently he hasn't been cleared to wrestle because he's on the verge of an asthma attack and may even be susceptible to pneumonia. Now, I realize those are both serious medical conditions, but doesn't this kind of make Billy sound like a bit of a puss? I mean, couldn't they have maybe played it up as though he had more of a sports-related injury? I feel like that would have been the better route, but hey, I'm obviously no doctor. One more fun tidbit before the match begins. When Val Venus makes his way to the ring, the cameraman zooms in on a sign in the crowd, which is literally just a large drawing of a hot dog. Very subtle, but I appreciated it. So the match gets underway, but then, after only about 20 seconds of action, Ryan Shamrock emerges from backstage. But whose side is she on? Well, we find out in short order, because with Ken Shamrock beating on Val, Goldust rolls out of the ring and proceeds to kiss Ryan on the lips. Now, since Ryan is a terrible actress, we actually can't tell if she enjoyed that lip lock or if Goldust was just taking liberties, but either way, it enrages her brother. Ken Shamrock then rolls out of the ring and starts beating on Goldust, and both men end up brawling through the crowd. And then, while that's going on, referee Mike Kyoto proceeds to count both men out, so mark that one down on the list of bizarre Attitude Era finishes. We now have a count out in a triple threat match. Uh-huh. So Val Venus retains his Intercontinental title, and he starts walking up the ramp, where he then turns around and poses by holding the title above his head. However, when he does that, he gets jumped from behind by Mr. Asthma, or sorry, uh, Mr. Ass. Billy Gunn then grabs Val by the back of the head and throws him into the steel ring steps, and that is how the segment ends. I don't know, Billy certainly didn't appear to be hampered by his condition, so this whole scenario where he's ruled unable to compete is really bizarre. I'm not sure if they follow up on this at all in the coming weeks, but, uh, yeah, Billy Gunn has asthma. That's an angle now, folks. 
Perhaps you can have a theme song in the future where a singer says, I'm an asthmatic, but I probably wouldn't hold out too much hope for that. From there, we cut backstage where we see Mankind and Al Snow talking to what appears to be a returning Jim Ross. And I say what appears to be because we only see JR from behind as he's talking to Foley and Snow, and this is wrestling, so you never know. But then, after a commercial break, sure enough, Jim Ross does indeed emerge from backstage and start walking to the ring. So yes, good old JR is officially back on Raw for the first time in about three months. As you recall, back in December, JR suffered a recurrence of Bell's palsy, which was brought about due to the stress of his mother dying, so it's been a really rough stretch for him. And when he comes to the ring here tonight, we can see that it appears that he is still suffering from some of the effects of facial paralysis, but he grabs a microphone anyway. And from there, JR proceeds to ask, of all people, Bart Gunn to join him in the ring. So you know what? Let's listen to what JR has to say. Well, Bart, WrestleMania, you've got a professional fighter going to be going against Butterbean. He's got a hell of a punch. Do you think you can knock this man out like you did everybody else in a brawl for all? Well, JR, you know, I'm not training just to beat him. I'm training to knock him out. I noticed you're having a little trouble looking me in the face. You know, you know, a lot of people around here in the WWF seem to have trouble looking at JR's face these days. You know, folks, when my mama died in December, the next day I got Bell's palsy for the second time, they told me that I'd be uh, get my chair back right over there when I got ready. Well, I was ready, Bart, at the Royal Rumble. I was ready to go back to work. And they flew me and my wife out to California from Connecticut. It was going to be a happy day for the Ross family. And by God, we needed some happiness. They told me late on Saturday night, oh, JR, we don't want you to go back to work now. You're not ready because nobody wants to look at your face. Nobody wants to look at you, JR, because your, your paralysis in your face. I had to go back up and tell my mother. Or my, my wife, I was like, heard of God, I could have told my mother. But I wasn't going to get my job back. How do you think, Bart, that made me feel? Well, JR, you know, I'm very sorry about your condition. But what has that got to do with me? It's got every damn thing to do with you. Remember a guy by the name of Dr. Death, Steve Williams? The guy you told everybody was my boy, JR's boy. You even called me and said, JR. Am I going to get heat with you for knocking out your boy before the brawl for all? Well, first of all, he ain't no boy. He's a man. He's a man. And so you knocked him out. That wasn't no big deal. I think it was a lucky punch in my view. But the big deal was not that you knocked him out. You told all the boys in the back that you knocked out JR's boy. You told everybody that you humiliated JR. You embarrassed JR. Wasn't that a funny thing? I got one over on OJR. And 20 damn years in the business, Bart, 20 years in the business, you tried to take away from me with your ridicule. Listen, look at me in the face and I'll talk to you. Show me a little bit of respect, will you? Show me some respect. Because I want you to look at me in the eye when I do what I have never done in my career. And that sucked the hell out of something. What is he doing, Michael? What? Go ahead. What the hell are you thinking about? What gives you the right to come out here hitting me? I'm not to blame for any of this stuff. Oh, yes, you are. I did my job, and I did it very well. It, 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 Don't you ever 
lay your hands on me again, pal. Ever. You're responsible for this, and you know Kate, it. Kate. So. That, 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 that's Dr. Death. Hey. Look out. Oh, that's Dr. Death, Steve Williams. Listen, listen to JR. I guess I'm a bit confused here. JR mentions that his Bell's palsy recurred right after his mother died, but then he tells Bart Gunn that it's all his fault because he knocked out Dr. Death in the brawl for all and bragged about it. What? Very strange. So JR proceeds to slap Bart right in his face, which does indeed bring out Dr. Death Steve Williams, who we can now assume was the man inside of that goofy costume last week when Bart Gunn got jumped from behind during his hardcore match with Bob Hawley. So Dr. Death sneaks up on Bart and puts him in a waist lock, and he then proceeds to deliver a German suplex to him, dropping Bart right on his fucking head. And then he hits him with a side suplex for good measure as well, almost dropping him on his head once again. Clearly, Dr. Death is living up to his name by attempting to murder Bart Gunn. From there, both men head backstage as Michael Cole wonders what the hell is up with J.R., So yes, it appears that they're now going for another Jim Ross heel turn, which we haven't seen since the fall of 1996, when he brought in fake Razor and fake Diesel. Clearly, since that was such a huge success, they're hoping lightning will strike twice. I do have to question the logic here, though, since you would think JR right now would be one of the most sympathetic people to have on television, considering he's having health problems due to his friggin' mother dying. But of course, it's the Attitude Era, so obviously, you gotta turn him into a bad guy. I mean, that's just, that's just common sense. Yeesh. With that being said, though, I really enjoyed that JR heel promo. I know his 1996 heel run tends to get slagged because, like I just mentioned, everyone mostly remembers the moment when he brings out fake Razor and fake Diesel, but I actually did find that brief 1996 run to be pretty damn entertaining. If you go back and listen to some of those shows when he's on commentary with Vince, he spends a fair majority of time just giving him shit. And if you'd like a quick example, here's a clip from In Your House Buried Alive, where JR's constant headset difficulties throughout the show begin to piss him off. As we said, uh, Helms hit and uh, we didn't hear that. That was what <laughs> JR was making as Hemsley's a little you quicker. Button over there, you're pushing McMahon to do no, this. I have no button. Are you having fun? Am I? You having fun? I'm enjoying business? myself, as a matter of fact. Well, I'm glad you are. I don't think Hunter is right now. Hunter Hurst Helmsley from Greenwich, Connecticut. Hey, look at this. Look at the hair pulling now. The American blue blood. A lot of rich, arrogant people live in Greenwich. Where are you from, Vince? <laughs> from Connecticut. There you go. Where do you live, uh, Jr.? Oh, I live uh, part of the time in Connecticut in that overpriced hellhole, and hey, then when I get to get out of there, I go back to Oklahoma where I belong. I Whoa. see. I stand by it. 1996 heel Jim Ross was a lot of fun. But anyway, my point here is that no one wants to boo Jim Ross right now in 1999, but damn it, he's at least going to make him try, and I thought tonight's promo was a good start. And after that concludes... If you want to talk about a confusing segue, we go from an angry Jim Ross walking up the ramp 
to a quick cut backstage where Deborah is sitting in front of a mirror wearing a silk robe. It's almost as if they want to remind the teenage fans, don't worry, you will get a boner very soon. And that provides a fitting segue because, after a commercial break, WWF Tag Team Champions Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart head to the ring, accompanied by the aforementioned Deborah. Jeff Jarrett states that they've beaten every team that's been put in their path, so they want some real competition now. Deborah then closes by saying that if anyone can beat the champs, she will give that team the robe off of her back. So there you go. Apparently, Deborah's breasts are on the line tonight. And from there, the Challenger's music hits, and we see which team has been given the title shot tonight. D-Generation X members Triple H and X-Pac. Certainly not who I was expecting, but it definitely popped me to see them coming out for a title match. One quick side note here, though. When the match begins, they reference the fact that they had satellite difficulties while broadcasting Sunday Night Heat last night due to inclement weather, which resulted in a strange show. They started by airing Heat with... Just the audio from the commentary team, no picture whatsoever, but then they gave up on that after the first two matches and just started showing last week's episode of Heat instead. Now, of course, I had to go on the WWE Network to see if they actually had the footage from this show, and it turns out that they do, so that's good if you ever want to watch this quote-unquote lost episode of Sunday Night Heat. However, I had to get a bit of a chuckle out of this, because when I was watching the May 1996 episode of Raw for the Raw is Nitro podcast, it was actually one night after In Your House Beware of Dog, a show which also had its satellite feed cut out due to inclement weather. I thought that was a pretty funny coincidence. But anyway, getting back to the tag titles match, Jeff Jarrett and Triple H actually shared some ring time together in this match, which I thought was interesting, since obviously Jarrett goes on to found TNA, and Hunter will probably end up owning WWE at some point, so that's fun. Couple of would-be businessmen in the ring together. Further along in the match, X-Pac managed to hit Jarrett with the Bronco Buster, but then Deborah got up on the ring apron and attempted to distract him. However... Pac didn't take the bait, instead doing a crotch chop in her direction, then hitting Jarrett with the X-Factor. Pac went for the pinfall, but Deborah distracted referee Tim White by literally pushing his face into her boobs and putting his hands on her ass. I mean, granted, I suppose that's a pretty effective strategy. Owen Hart then snuck into the ring behind X-Pac and pushed him into Tim White, causing him to collide with Deborah and knock her to the arena floor. Ever the gentleman, X-Pac then went to check on Deborah to make sure she was okay, and by the way, we saw this exact same sort of scenario just a few weeks ago when Billy Gunn left the ring to check on Ryan Shamrock after she got bumped off the apron, so it seems like Vinnie Roo's well is starting to run dry. But anyway, with X-Pac checking on Deborah, WWF European Champion Shane McMahon appeared out of nowhere and threw X-Pac face-first into the side of the ring steps, with the impact knocking the top part of the stairs right off. And strangely, despite that pretty cool visual, X-Pac completely no-sold it, and he then chased Shane off backstage. I have to say, that's the first time I've ever seen someone shrug off a stairs bump like that, and I can't believe that X-Pac, of all people, would be the one to do it. Incredibly bizarre. So now, with Triple H left by himself in the ring, Owen and Jarrett start beating the crap out of him, so Tim White calls for the bell. I guess Owen and Jarrett got DQ'd there? Sure, okay, why not? But then, shortly after the bell rings, X-Pac returns and helps Hunter clear the ring, but obviously it was a bit too late because Owen and Jarrett will retain their titles. 
And also, because this wasn't already overbooked enough, Ivory then emerges from backstage and starts walking toward Deborah, but she starts heading up the ramp with Owen and Jarrett. However, once they get near the top of the stage, D'Lo Brown jumps the champs from behind. With Owen and Jarrett taken out, Deborah is standing on the ramp by herself, so Ivory sneaks up on her and tears off her robe, exposing her red bra and thong. So there you go, teenagers. You got your money's worth tonight. And after a quick commercial break, we go backstage where Owen, Jarrett, and Deborah are with Kevin Kelly. And as if Deborah getting her robe torn off wasn't enough, they then proceed to show a slow-motion instant replay of it, because clearly it wasn't skeezy enough the first time. And Angry Deborah then proceeds to challenge Ivory to a match later on tonight, so stay tuned, folks, because this rivalry must continue. So we then go back into the arena, where Luna Vachon and Tori are heading to the ring. If you recall last week on Raw, Sable insulted Tori, and Luna then came to the ring to tell her that she didn't have to treat people that way. So Sable nailed both of them in the back with her women's title. Well, I guess when I say she nailed them with it, that may be generous, because in actuality, it looked more like she kind of brushed them with the belt. Not exactly all that convincing is all I'm saying. So Luna proceeds to call out Sable, and your WWF Women's Champion comes down to the ring. And in case you need another reminder, Michael Cole helpfully informs us that Sable's edition of Playboy will indeed be hitting newsstands just eight short days from now, so be sure to mark your calendars. And as soon as Sable enters the ring, Tori then jumps Luna from behind. So yes, it appears that the Sable superfan is indeed still a superfan after all, despite the fact that her hero jumped her from behind last week. So Sable then picks Luna up and nails her with a Sable bomb to further humiliate her. Tori then goes for a high five, but Sable leaves her hanging. The women's champ then exits the ring and starts walking up the ramp with Tori following behind her as though she were her lapdog, and that is how we conclude the segment. So what have we learned here? Sable still appears to be completely full of herself, so much so that she barely even acknowledges Tori, who had just helped her dispatch her biggest rival. Will Tori eventually grow some balls and confront her hero, or will she always be destined to remain in her shadow? Stay tuned, folks, because this riveting storyline is going to continue to play out in the coming weeks, with a heavy emphasis on the word coming, since that Playboy issue will be getting a lot of fans' attention soon. And after a commercial break, of all things, it is now time for a WWF Championship match. Champion The Rock putting his world title on the line against a man who is making his return to Raw after a two-week absence. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, DJ 
next proudly brings to you, it's a hold up. When I get done whipping the Rock's ass, I'm gonna be the WWF heavyweight champion of the world. The Road Dog, Jesse Dave, and I'm representing the new age outlaws. All right, so a couple things here. Number one, as you probably recall, Road Dog has been off TV for the past two weeks because, in the kayfabe sense, he was attacked in the locker room by an unknown assailant, which resulted in him having to vacate his hardcore title prior to St. Valentine's Day Massacre. In real life, of course, he was actually in rehab. And it probably isn't a good sign when you make your return to Raw, and one of the first things you do is point out a Road Dog 420 sign in the crowd. And he's also wearing a shirt which says... Roll the dog a bone on the back, so nice job steering into that one, WWF. Spoiler alert, this is not the last time he will struggle with substance abuse issues, unfortunately. And number two, that quote-unquote injury to Road Dog worked out pretty well for him because he goes from losing the lowest belt in the company to challenging for the world title in his first match back on Raw. Not sure how he pulled that off, but that's pretty damn impressive. Good to have him back, though. So shortly after the match begins, Rock nails Road Dog with a DDT, and then he motions for someone to come out from backstage. And that someone turns out to be the big nasty Paul White, who makes his way down to ringside. And sure enough, he makes his presence felt pretty quickly as he proceeds to hit Road Dog with a headbutt while Rock is distracting referee Earl Hebner. However, Road Dog does manage to mount a comeback, hitting Rock with his dancing punches, followed by his shaky leg knee drop, but then... Pretty much out of nowhere, Road Dog goes for an Irish whip, but Rock just grabs him, nails him with a rock bottom, then bounces off the ropes and hits him with a corporate elbow for good measure. And that was enough to score the one, the two, and the three. Your winner and still WWF champion, The Rock. Welcome back, Road Dog. I hope you enjoyed jobbing cleanly in about four minutes on a show where no one ever jobs cleanly. I suppose he has to pay his penance, though. So The Rock and Paul White leave together pretty much immediately, leaving Road Dog alone in the ring, but then a familiar foe shows up with a chair to try and add further insult to injury. And The Road Dog being attended to, valiant effort, but The Rock, thanks to Paul White, defends the WWF Championship successfully, thanks in part to corporate member Paul White. Uh-oh. Let's introduce our third and final contestant for this evening. He's a schizophrenic psychopath from Lima, Ohio. His favorite hobbies are hardcore title matches and needlepoint. And Road Dog, we've decided that we're going to pick right up where we took off because it's your fault that we did the J-O-B, the B-O-B on the PPV. So we figure we've got a little present for you. So welcome to Double Jeopardy. Well, still blaming the Road Dog. They were supposed to have the second match in a best out of three. Look at this. Oh! Series. Oh, and the head. Another one. The chair bent in half. I don't know what it is that makes that so, so stupid, but it really works. And he's laughing about this. I told you he's a moron. And here comes the hardcore champion, Hardcore Holly. What the hell is he doing out here? He should still be the hardcore champion. You see, I see no reason to further disrupt 
this television show. So if you two pussies want any more, I'll be in the parking lot. We know you're in. Did he say he's going to be in the parking lot? Yeah, he's waiting in the parking lot. He wants snow and hardcore Holly. So, yes, what you heard there was Al Snow calling out Road Dog and entering the ring with a chair. But Road Dog immediately took the chair away and smacked Al in the head with it three times. And as I've mentioned on this podcast before, this is the brief stage of Al Snow's career where he has apparently decided to no-sell chair shots to the skull because he takes one, then gets back up, takes another, then gets back up, and after he takes a third one, we can see him laughing while lying on the canvas. This is, of course, the inspiration for Mick Foley's line on Sunday Night Heat, where he says that Al Snow landed a lucrative endorsement deal with Lazy Boy, despite the fact that he usually doesn't sell chairs. Good stuff. But anyway, before Al Snow can eat a fourth chair shot, your WWF Hardcore Champion Hardcore Holly comes to the ring, and of course Road Dog immediately takes him out with a chair shot to the head too. And yes, for those scoring at home, this keeps the streak alive of having at least one unprotected chair shot to the skull on every episode of Raw so far in the year 1999. Remind me again why that concussion lawsuit got thrown out a couple months ago? Oh, well, whatever, I'm sure those judges know better. So yes, as you heard there, Road Dog then calls Holly and Snow pussies, which surprisingly went unbleeped on the initial broadcast, and he challenges them to come meet him in the parking lot. However, before we find out if they accept, we go to commercial, and when we come back, we get the Rescue of the Week, sponsored by the United States Coast Guard. Yes, you heard that correctly. The friggin' Coast Guard used to be a sponsor of the WWF. Oh, and in case you were wondering what the rescue of the week was, it was Kane coming to China's aid on heat last night as Triple H was about to hit her with a pedigree. I hope the Coast Guard feels like they got their money's worth on that one. So from there, we do indeed cut backstage where the road dog is waiting in the parking lot for Al Snow and Hardcore Holly, but neither of them show up. In fairness, though, they both did just get nailed in the head with a chair, so perhaps they forgot how to get there. So instead, we cut back into the arena where the Broods music plays. But instead, of all people, Public Enemy walks to the ring dressed as Gangrel and Edge. If you recall last week on Raw, Public Enemy made their WWF debut against Gangrel and Edge, which they won by disqualification, but after the match, the Brood gave them a bloodbath in retaliation. And so, as a form of, uh, payback, I guess... Public Enemy is dressing up like them before the match tonight. Think of D-Generation X's parody of the Nation of Domination, except about 1,000 times worse. Not only that, but they even end up getting some time to cut a promo before the match, so I'm going to go ahead and play that for you here, because I'm guessing this may be the only time they ever get to cut a promo on Raw. Get 
we're not afraid of is anything, anybody, and we're definitely not afraid of you. Man, I have to say, it's kind of sad to see these guys cut such a shouty promo while the crowd just greets them with complete and utter silence. Also, the fact that they actually busted out a NOT at least seven years after that was a thing is just sad. Although not quite as sad as what happens to them on the next episode of Sunday Night Heat, but I suppose we'll get to that the next time around. So anyway, after that gem of a promo, the lights go out for a while, presumably to signal the arrival of the brood, but instead, when the lights come back on, Johnny Grunge is now standing in the ring by himself. The confused Grunge then just runs off backstage, and that is the end of that. So apparently, Flyboy Rocco Rock has tragically been kidnapped, or teleported, or who knows what. One thing we can say for sure, though, he will be missed. Not! Sorry, sorry, too soon. So we then cut backstage, where Road Dog is now brawling in the parking lot with Hardcore Holly, but strangely no Al Snow, though. We're told that this is not an official Hardcore title match, it's just two guys fighting with each other backstage, so... Alright then, I guess no reason for us to care. And to make matters even worse, they cut away from that brawl and go back into the arena, where Steve Blackman and Darren Drozdov are having a match, which has already started. I mean, man, that, that really tells you how low you are on the scrotum pole there, doesn't it? Sorry, guys, we're not going to show the start of your match because Road Dog and Bob Holly are going to be Irish whipping each other into metal pipes and trash cans. You understand. Another thing to note here is the fact that the Blackman Draws match is actually the first ever kendo stick match, which has special rules. The first man to knock the other off of his feet using a kendo stick is the winner. No pinfalls, no submissions, you just have to knock the other guy down. Simple enough, I suppose. So both men essentially take turns whacking each other with the sticks, with Blackman mostly having the advantage because, you know, he's a badass martial artist, or so we're told anyway. However, at one point, Blackman rears back to swing the stick at draws, but he accidentally hits referee Teddy Long in the stomach, knocking Teddy down to the ground. Blackman then hits draws in the back with the stick, knocking draws to the ground, and therefore meaning that Blackman should be the winner of the match. Unfortunately, because Teddy Long is down on the mat, he didn't see it, so Blackman goes over to check on Teddy, but when he does that... Draws smacks him in the back of the head with his kendo stick, knocking Blackman down to the mat. And this time, Teddy Long does indeed see Blackman fall down, so yes, he awards the match to Darren Drozdov. And by the way, I hope my recap of this match didn't sound too quick, but quite literally the whole thing got a minute and 15 seconds of ring time. To say that they don't trust these guys to keep the crowd's interest would be the understatement of the century, even in a gimmick match. And honestly, well, I, I can't say that I really blame them. So from there, we cut backstage again, where Road Dog and Hardcore Holly are now fighting in a stairwell somewhere. Eventually, they make their way outside the arena. And remember, this is friggin' Cleveland in early March, so I imagine it's going to be a tad chilly for a shirtless Bob Holly. But then, shortly after they go out into the cold... Al Snow ambushes them both by swinging one of those plastic outdoor ashtrays at them. You probably know what I'm talking about. Those things with the thin necks that have a hole at the top where you can put your lit cigarettes. Uh, not, not important. Not important. So from there, all three men brawl into an actual road alongside the arena. But thankfully for them, it's not busy and only one car drives by. And I would personally love to know what that guy was thinking as he passed by that whole scene. 
But finally, referees managed to separate all three men, and this non-match has officially come to a close. Has all of this confrontation made you want to see a triple threat match for the hardcore title between these three guys? For me, it's a definite... I guess? Not sure if it ever happens, though, but I suppose we'll find out together. And now, we get what will likely be the highlight of this show for many of you. As you know, Shane McMahon recently won the WWF European title, but he seemed like a bit of a coward lately, constantly running away from X-Pac. So how do we know that Shane is a force to be reckoned with? Well, let's take it to a pre-taped vignette, which features some of his acquaintances. You know, growing up in Greenwich isn't something that is easy for any of us. It's not like these poor scum towns that are all around us. They think they're going to kick our ass in football. Shane just seems to like to, once in a while, get a little rowdy and crack some heads. He'll kick ass just like any other tough guy. Or he'll, he'll kick ass just like any other bum or scumbag or Julio. Because he's Shane, and he can do that. Because he's just because he's got money doesn't mean he's a A lot of times the poor kids, they just have to do it for survival. As far as, like, beating someone's head in, we do it because we enjoy it. We have nothing else to do. Well, guess what? We got the better facilities, better gyms, better equipment. What do you want to do? When you got pipes like the kid or Smack Daddy or Pete Gas or Willie Green, can't handle it, baby. You know, there's a lot of tough guys in Greenwich. It just seems like Shane's the toughest. If you see Shane O'Mac and a Grizzly getting into a fight, you better help the Grizzly because that kid is not going to give up. He'll cut his throat. He'll do whatever it takes, rip his eyes out. Bite him, bite his arm. Yes, that's right. Two guys named Rodney and Pete Gass are here to inform us that Shane McMahon was one badass dude back in Greenwich, Connecticut. And in case you're wondering, yes, both Rodney and Pete Gass are actual childhood friends of Shane, so that part is indeed a shoot, folks. Without spoiling too much, they do eventually add a third member to this group who is not actually a real-life Greenwich resident, but that'll come soon enough. So yes, I probably don't even need to tell you this, but this is indeed the on-camera debut of the group which comes to be known as the Mean Street Posse. Now personally, I'm a fan of the Posse, and not just for their catchy, repetitive theme song that you heard there during that vignette. I think they end up playing their roles quite well, but I'd definitely love to hear your thoughts if you want to send me an email or a tweet. Are you pro-Posse or anti-Posse? Pick a side, folks. So after a quick commercial, we then get footage from During the Break, and holy shit, is this one a doozy. A camera crew quickly rushes backstage where we hear Johnny Grunge yelling, and then we see what he's shouting about. The unconscious, kidnapped Rocco Rock is covered in blood, and he's basically been hung from the ceiling by both of his arms. If you need a frame of reference, think of that poor police lieutenant that Hannibal Lecter hangs from his cell in the Silence of the Lambs, and I think you'll get the gist. Good lord. If you want to see what I'm talking about, I actually put a screen grab of this up on our Twitter, at RawAttitudePod, so feel free to take a look. It is quite disturbing. Also, I'm guessing that someone from the U.S. Coast Guard watched this episode of Raw and then said, Uh, shit, maybe we need to rethink this whole sponsorship thing. So, anyway, after that disemboweling, we go back into the arena where Vince McMahon is heading to the ring, completely unmoved by the fact that one of his employees has been murdered backstage. He walks over to the commentary table, and when he arrives there, a few fans put up their hands for a high five, and Vince actually does indeed high five them. Strange move for the evil owner of the company, but sure, okay. 
And then, when Vince sits down at the commentary table and puts his headset on, he announces a match for WrestleMania in perhaps the most uneventful way imaginable. You gentlemen don't mind, I'm going to join you, do you? Uh, no, that's an announcement or something? Something to like tonight? Oh, I think maybe we're going to have a lot of announcements here tonight, yeah. Okay, one Mr. One of them just might involve WrestleMania. Really? Yeah, like a Hell in a Cell match with The Undertaker and The Big Boss Man. What? Yeah, you know, something like that. <laughs> yeah, you know, something like that. No big deal, it's only the third ever Hell in a Cell match on pay-per-view after the previous two have been absolute classics. Why bother giving that a big build-up? That'd just be silly. So anyway, Vince is joining commentary for our next match, the very match he booked earlier tonight, The Undertaker, accompanied by Paul Bearer, versus Mankind, and, if Foley wins the match, he will earn the right to become the second guest referee for the main event at WrestleMania, as well as the special guest referee for Austin versus Kane tonight. And again I say, be sure to remember that second part for later on. And early on in the match, Vince says that in addition to his rather uneventful announcement of the Hell in a Cell match, he has another surprise for The Undertaker tonight, so I guess we'll see how that plays out. Back in the ring, The Undertaker went to the top turnbuckle to do his rope walk, but when he jumped off, Mankind caught him with the mandible claw. I thought that was a pretty cool reversal, I don't recall them doing that spot before. However, Taker managed to escape by throwing Foley to the arena floor. Undertaker then rolled out of the ring, and, with Paul Bearer distracting referee Tim White, Taker took that opportunity to nail Foley in the back with a steel chair. Eventually, Tim White turned his attention back toward the match, and, with both men brawling outside the ring, he started counting. Undertaker rolled Mankind back into the ring, but unfortunately for Taker, he became distracted by Vince at ringside, so Tim White counted him out. Your winner of the match is Mankind, which means that he has now earned the right to become the second special guest referee for the main event of WrestleMania 15. And yes, he will referee tonight's Austin Kane match. However, we weren't done just yet because, with the match now over, The Undertaker then punched Vince McMahon right in the face. He then put the chairman on top of the commentary table and grabbed him by the throat, presumably to chokeslam him through the table, but before he could do it... The big boss man ran out from backstage and nailed Taker in the leg with his nightstick. He also added a few nightstick shots to the face for good measure until several other members of the Ministry of Darkness ran down to ringside and chased the boss man and Vince away through the crowd. Meanwhile, a celebratory mankind was raising his hand in triumph, so Taker simply went back into the ring, grabbed Foley by the throat, and hit him with a choke slam for good measure. So much for enjoying that victory. And after a commercial break, we then quickly cut backstage, where we see the boss man and Vince getting into a limousine and driving away. So it appears that the chairman has managed to escape the Undertaker's wrath for at least one night anyway. Again, I have to admit that I'm conflicted here. The Undertaker is quite clearly evil, but then again, so is Vince McMahon. And when you add the boss man into the mix, who is also a heel, it puts the fans into one of two positions. They either pick a side or they don't give a shit either way. And when it comes to that Taker-Bossman Hell in a Cell match at WrestleMania, well, I think you can guess which position the fans will take. Stay tuned. So from there, we go back into the arena, where it is time for our next quote-unquote match, Deborah versus Ivory. Initially, Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart had accompanied Deborah, and D'Lo Brown had accompanied Ivory, but referee Mike Chioda quickly ordered them all to go backstage. 
So the match begins with Ivory getting on top of Deborah and slapping her in the face, and that is also literally where the match ends, because Terry Runnels and Jacqueline then immediately come to the ring, with Jackie proceeding to attack Ivory. Last night on Heat, Ivory beat Jacqueline in a match, so apparently this is PMS's way of getting revenge. With Jackie beating up Ivory in the ring, Terry then grabs one of the commentary headsets and informs us that, quote, You screw with us, you get screwed back. And from there, Jacqueline then finishes the beating by hitting Ivory with a pretty nice-looking pile driver until D'Lo finally reemerges and chases PMS away. So presumably, your winner of the match is Ivory via disqualification, although it's never actually announced. But once again, Deborah gets the better of her rival, this time with a big assist from Jacqueline and Terry Runnels. Will this brief in-ring action lead to Deborah being involved in more wrestling matches? Hopefully not, but then again, common sense is not exactly a specialty of the Attitude Era. So how do you follow up that five-star classic? Well, after a quick commercial break, it is now time for our main event, Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Kane, who is accompanied by China, with the stipulation being that Kane and China are fired from the WWF if Kane loses. And also, if you recall the events of tonight's opening segment, Vince McMahon told Mankind that he could be the special guest referee for this match if he defeated The Undertaker, and sure enough, Mankind did indeed defeat The Undertaker by countout just a little while ago, and so that means that the referee for this main event tonight is... Earl Hebner. That's right, Mankind is completely absent from this main event, and as far as I can tell, there is zero explanation as to why he's not there to referee the very match that he requested to referee in the opening segment. What the fuck? If you really want to strain for an explanation, I guess you could say that The Undertaker maybe injured Mankind with that post-match chokeslam, but then again, Taker threw Mankind off the top of a goddamn cell, and he still continued the match. So basically what I'm saying is, Mick Foley pulling a no-show here makes no goddamn sense. I mean, I just... I, I don't even know anymore, folks. Sometimes this stuff brings me to the verge of a stroke. But anyway, on a happier note, I know I've said this before, but my god, the pop Stone Cold gets when he walks to the ring. He gets such loud reactions from these crowds that it still gives me goosebumps sometimes. Remember when wrestling fans really cared, folks? Man... Those were good times. So the first portion of the match mostly consisted of Austin and Kane brawling around at ringside because, after all, this is an Attitude Hour match. Can't just spend all that time in the ring. That would just be boring. At one point, Austin whipped Kane into the ring steps, so referee Earl Hebner went to check on the Big Red Machine, and when he did that, China nailed Stone Cold in the face with a forearm behind Hebner's back, knocking Austin down to the ground. I know that doesn't seem too major, but Austin's willingness to sell for China was nice to see. And shortly after that, we got another standard spot for Stone Cold's matches. He and Kane brawled into the crowd, where Austin then attempted to hit Kane with a pile driver on the floor, but Kane reversed it and backdropped him onto the concrete. I swear, Stone Cold seems to do that spot in almost every match, but hey, it looks painful, so good for him. Speaking of which, though, remember how referee Tim White counted out The Undertaker just a little while ago for being outside the ring for 10 seconds? Well... Earl Hebner is apparently totally content to allow Stone Cold and Kane to brawl on the floor and in the crowd for minutes on end. And this match was never announced as a no-countout, no-DQ match, so I'm just saying, where's the consistency here, folks? Frankly, I think Mankind probably would have been a better referee here anyway. 
So the match continues on, with Kane mostly controlling it, until Stone Cold started mounting a comeback. Austin kicked Kane in the stomach, then went for a stunner, but Kane pushed Austin away, accidentally shoving him into Earl Hebner, who was knocked down to the canvas. From there, China jumped up on the ring apron, and Kane then picked Stone Cold up into tombstone position, but Austin wriggled free and pushed Kane into China, knocking her down to the arena floor. Kane then turned back around, he got one more kick to the stomach, and yes, this time, Austin did indeed hit the Stone Cold Stunner. He went for the pin, but Hebner was slow to recover from getting bumped, so when he finally did make the count, he only made it to two, until China grabbed Stone Cold's foot and pulled him off of Kane. And then, this is where things got a tad uncomfortable. Why? Because Austin then grabbed China by the hair, much to the delight of the crowd, of course. I suppose we'll just ignore Stone Cold's, um, legal troubles for now, but thankfully he doesn't manage to beat up China here anyway, because Kane grabs him from behind and nails him with a back suplex, which enables China to safely exit the ring. And once that happens, the big nasty Paul White emerges from backstage and walks down to ringside. And you know what? I'm going to go ahead and play the finish for you here, picking it up right as Austin is trash-talking Earl Hebner while Kane is down on the mat. Now, see if you can keep up with this finish, because it makes zero goddamn sense. Hey, look! Look at what! Look at Paul White! Paul White just tossed a chair into the ring! Oh, no! Austin's got it! Austin has the chair! Okay, so let's try to unpack all of this here. With Kane down on the mat, Paul White rolled a chair into the ring near him, but Stone Cold grabbed it first, and from there, Austin hit Kane with two chair shots to the head, and by the way, these were uncharacteristically weak-looking chair shots by Stone Cold. Let's just say Lance Storm would have been proud. Now, mind you, he hits Kane with the chair right in front of referee Earl Hebner, and yet there's no disqualification for some reason. 
So China then enters the ring to distract Austin, which results in Stone Cold swinging the chair at her. Thankfully, she ducks out of the ring, but then Paul White starts distracting Austin, which enables China to sneak right back into the ring and hit Stone Cold with a low blow. And once again, China does this right in front of Hebner, and he still does not call for the bell. Did Earl have some sort of memory loss here? Has he forgotten how to referee a match? That's the only explanation I can possibly think of at this point. So Kane then does that old heel routine of grabbing the babyface's arms and holding them behind his back, which allows Paul White to go for a kick, but Stone Cold moves out of the way, causing White to kick Kane by mistake instead. Austin then ducks out of the ring and flips off White, and they play his music, even though we still haven't had a bell, so... I guess it's a no contest? And as you heard in that clip, Michael Cole theorizes that Kane and China should get to stay in the corporation since they didn't officially lose the match, so, uh, sure, whatever. I mean, Jesus Christ, what a confusing ending to a show. It's a shame, too, because this was actually a 14-minute match between Austin and Kane on free TV, and matches getting that much time on Raw these days are incredibly rare. I just don't understand the booking process, though. Is Vince Russo writing the show and saying, We'll finish with miscommunication between the heels and the show will just end. Only a mark would care about the match result, bro. I mean, am I asking for too much when I request for a match to abide by the standard rules that all wrestling contests have abided by for God knows how many years? Apparently so. Apparently so. Well, shit, maybe I'm just a dumb mark, too. Probably the case, but I'll own it. I guess it comes down to that old saying, if they don't care, I don't care. Yeesh. But anyway, there's more to discuss here. But for now, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed MCs back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they cluckin'. The WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap So last week, Raw handily defeated Nitro in the ratings, 5.55 to 4.73. Nothing too surprising there, but at least you can say that Nitro was at least within striking distance. This week, uh, not the case. Why? Because Nitro dropped back down to a 4.32, while Raw did a fucking 6.32. For those scoring at home, that would indeed be Raw's highest rating of all time. And it also tied the record for having a two-point ratings gap between the two shows, also the highest of all time. Now, as I've mentioned before, Nitro has not won in the ratings since October, but they've at least been able to stay competitive up to this point. Well, not anymore. I think this is the time period when you can officially say that the WWF grabbed the momentum and never looked back. And let's just say that you should get used to me saying that Raw set its all-time ratings record, because that's going to happen quite a bit over the coming weeks and months. The Monday Night Wars are still ongoing, but the actual ratings war itself is about as over as it can possibly get. But of course, for the sake of comparison, here's what you could have been watching over on Nitro on this night instead. Kidman defeated Psychosis to retain his cruiserweight title. Rey Mysterio defeated Bam Bam Bigelow in a match designed to continue putting over Rey's giant killer gimmick. Ernest the Cat Miller defeated Jerry Flynn. 
Hugh Morris defeated Perry Saturn in a match which somehow went for almost 10 minutes. Chris Benoit defeated Bret Hart by disqualification in a match which almost went 20 minutes, and you should definitely go seek out this match. And in your main event, Goldberg and Rick Steiner defeated Buff Bagwell and Scott Steiner. Now, by many accounts, this was actually a very well-received episode of Nitro. They went heavy on the in-ring content, and a lot of it was great. Unfortunately, the show got crushed in the ratings by a record margin, so just wait until you hear how WCW decides to counterpunch on the next episode of this podcast. Just remember, they went all-in on the actual wrestling this week. Next time out, oh, we'll get into it. But to tide you over until then, here is this week's excerpt from the book The Death of WCW by R.D. Reynolds and Brian Alvarez, which reports on what was going on in the company this week. Quote, Eric Bischoff in a pre-show Nitro meeting on March 1st again claimed that the WWF strategy would backfire because sponsors would pull out within a year. His theory would eventually prove to be correct, it just took longer than he thought. Therefore, the company was going to change its course again. He went over a laundry list of things that would now be banned, including crotch-grabbing, talking about hoochies, and lewd dances. He said WCW was going to go in the opposite direction of the WWF, because even if the ratings went down, if they had sponsors and WWF didn't, they'd win. It was a good theory. Whether or not Bischoff even believed they had a chance to turn things around is debatable, as his trips to Hollywood were on the rise. And in early March, he took his daughter to France on vacation. This was not a several-day excursion in between TV tapings. He simply left and didn't come back for weeks. This left Kevin Nash completely in charge of the company. So, with Bischoff over in Europe, what plan does Kevin Nash come up with to try and turn Nitro's fortunes around? We'll touch on that in the ratings recap next week. But for now, let's finish it up with the Raw Synopsis. So, I have to be honest here, I'm quite surprised that this show is the one which catapulted Raw to its first ever rating over a 6. This show was not very good at all. For me, there were really only three highlights. Number one, the Austin Kane main event, despite its idiotic non-finish. Number two, the brief introduction of the Mean Street Posse, although I'm probably in the minority there. And number three, again, I really enjoyed that Jim Ross heel promo. Other than that, we had seven matches on this show, and here was how they played out. A countout in a triple threat match, a DQ in the tag titles match, clean win for The Rock, screwy win for Draws in the kendo stick match, countout win for Mankind, DQ win for Ivory, and, uh, I guess, no contest in the main event? For those scoring at home, not a lot of people losing fair and square. I suppose that's the Vince Russo booking philosophy at this point. Everyone keeps their heat if they never lose cleanly. So yes, I'm going to go ahead and give this episode a thumbs down. Only a couple passable moments, but you can pretty much skip this show entirely. After tonight, we only have three more episodes of Raw to go until WrestleMania 15, so I certainly hope they step their game up here in the coming weeks. And before we wrap up, here are some notes from this week's edition of The Wrestling Observer describing some of what was going on in the wrestling world at this time. Now, I read that Death of WCW excerpt a little while ago, and Dave Meltzer actually has some further details on what Eric Bischoff has decided to ban from television. Rey Mysterio can no longer do the Bronco Buster, Norman Smiley can no longer do the Big Wiggle, and, perhaps most amusingly, Scott Steiner has basically been banned from cutting promos altogether. Now that's just a goddamn tragedy. 
The television show Inside Edition did a two-part story on the WWF this past week, and Vince McMahon actually sat down for an interview with them. He came across a lot like his Mr. McMahon character, including pointing his finger in the interviewer's face the same way he does to Bob Costas on another show two years from now. And hey, maybe Vince McMahon and Mr. McMahon aren't all that different in real life anyway. I'll actually go ahead and play some of that segment for you at the end of this podcast, so you can go ahead and judge for yourself. In other news, due to the WWF's recent ratings success, the USA Network is considering expanding Raw to three hours. I'm going to go out on a limb here and just say, great idea, three hours of Raw, who could possibly get tired of that, huh? Uh. In other successful ratings news, Steve Austin's appearance on Nash Bridges boosted that show by two full ratings points. There's even talk of doing a spin-off series with Austin's Jake Cage character because his appearance was so well-received. Will Stone Cold abandon the WWF and seek fame elsewhere? Certainly, he is the most likely main eventer on the roster right now who could ever become a huge Hollywood star. I mean, obviously. And finally, in some sad news, former WCW wrestler The Renegade, real name Rick Wilson, committed suicide on February 23rd, allegedly because he was severely depressed over his release from WCW a few weeks prior. At the start of Nitro, they actually told the bell for him three times and put up an in-memory graphic, which was a nice gesture on their part, so R.I.P. Renegade. It was a goofy character, but for what he was tasked with doing, I'd say he made the best out of the extremely lousy hand they dealt for him. And so, on that rather somber note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes, because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will now leave you with that aforementioned clip from this past week in 1999, where Vince McMahon sat down for an interview on the television show Inside Edition and tried to fight back against some of their accusations, most notably that the WWF is marketing to children, despite clearly being an adult product. So enjoy that, and I will catch you next time. With kids and teens 17 and under making up a third of the audience, and McMahon offers no apologies for the raw content that kids find so appealing. That's entertainment, okay? It happens on... And every school and every, you know, uh, uh, location on the street, it happens everywhere. So in essence, what we're doing is we're being contemporary. You're saying it's okay to behave that way? No. You're saying, saying that to children? Don't tell me what I'm saying. You want to ask me what I'm saying, I'll tell you what I'm okay. saying. Don't tell me what I'm saying, all right? I don't like that okay. because you're wrong. But don't hold us to any other higher standard than you would hold your own show or any other action-adventure-oriented program. Look at it that way, and you come across saying, you know what? They're pretty conservative. Pretty conservative? We didn't want to be too judgmental, so we commissioned the Indiana University Department of Telecommunications to analyze one full year's worth of the WWF's Monday Night Raw show. Here's what they found. 
1,658 times wrestlers or audience members were shown grabbing or pointing to their crotches. 434 times wrestlers or signs in the audience screamed out this phrase. 158 times profane descriptions of people were used. We can't repeat the words on this program. 128 times there was simulation of some type of sexual activity with one or more people. Often the vulgar acts would be replayed throughout the show. And that's not all. In a year's worth of programming, you had the appearance of as prostitutes 20 times. You had uh, uh, excuse me. partial nudity 32 Party. whoa, times. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You want to play here? I'm ready to play. You know, I have no problem playing yeah. with you, you know? But let's slow up just okay. a little bit. Prostitute, absolutely incorrect, totally incorrect. The word prostitute has never been used on our air. Hose. 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 Okay. Hose. We, we, we're, we're taking it down even one more level. No, we're not. It's not just semantics. Because, in essence, that character, the Godfather, is so over the top of anything that could possibly resemble a real pimp, if you would. Our hoes are naturally actresses. They're not real whores, because we don't do that, okay? What do you think? McMahon says he doesn't market the more risque material to kids. But look at the cover for this hot-selling WWF Degeneration X highlight tape. It's uncensored, naked, blood-covered, and loaded with sexual innuendo. And listen to the advice for kids. Kids, put your parents to bed. They can't handle watching this. Parental discretion is advised, but completely effing ignored. Well, let me ask you. You know, you're marketing to kids. You sell toys to the young ones. You sell tapes to the I teenagers. I just told you we market the kids. But you're marketing the same adult content no, programming to kids. You mean to tell you me can't you, separate you, you, have no, you have no sense of humor at all? Kids put your parents to bed? You know, come on, give me a break. What kid puts their parents to bed and watches videotape? Kid come put on. your parents to bed. They can't handle watching this. Parental right. discretion is advised, but completely effing ignored. Right. That's, that's, that's really attitudinal.